Yeah, well, good morning. Good to worship with you this morning, and uh, fun to uh, be able to see some of the different things that are going on around Trinity, and uh, excited about that, excited about baptism class coming up, and uh, looking forward to uh, those of you who are ready to take that step, never taken that step of identifying with Jesus, even if it goes, even if you've been a Jesus follower for a long time, if you missed that step, uh, you, ought to, you ought to join us for our baptism class and find out why that's important. So uh, we're going to be continuing this morning our study called God's Church, Your Family. Glad you're here for that. We've got middle schoolers who are at winter camp this weekend, so folks gone with that, and a good report on the high schoolers and their weekend this last weekend, but we're kind of plugging away here under the, uh, you know, plugging away, and uh, we're going to continue our study this morning. So we just finished, we, we've sung a lot this morning about love and our love for God and His love for us. And kind of finished celebrating love this week, not that you have to really finish, but you know, Valentine's Day, kind of a culmination of that. And, and uh, I think it always sets couples up for, uh, you know, expectations and dashed expectations. And it reminds me of, uh, of one of the things that I run into in premarital counseling. So I've done a fair amount of premarital counseling. And one of the things that is almost universal among every couple that comes in to uh, talk with me is I have an inventory that kind of helps me understand where a couple's at. Almost every couple comes in with this one thing in common. Everything else may be different, but one thing is in common. They almost always come in with high, with unrealistic expectations for what it means to be married. Uh, they have this distorted uh, image of, of marriage and this idealization of what it's going to be like. Uh, and uh, my job is to help bring them down to reality a little bit. Uh, because actually there's a correlation between having healthy expectations in your marriage and being happy in it. And so if you can help moderate expectations, then you can help couples uh, uh, be more uh, fulfilled in their relationship. So I usually give them at least two assignments. I usually have, have couples, and some of you have done this for me. I have couples read an article on healthy expectations in marriage. I've got an article that's kind of helpful And then I always have them uh, leave and come back the next time with a list of 10 things that could go wrong in their marriage. 10 things that could go wrong, and they have to come up with these lists independently and come back and share them. So we really have 20 different items. Each each, uh, uh, person comes up with their own list. And uh, that's a helpful thing for them to do. They put things on there that they haven't really thought about before, things like infertility or losing their job or not getting along with in-laws all the way to really, really serious things like cancer and adultery and the real things that happen. And uh, what that exercise does is it helps them understand, it puts them in a better position to preserve their marriage because they understand that it's not going to be easy, that it's going to have twists and turns and that, that uh, uh, you're not going to be happily married by accident, that it's going to take work. Probably the most, uh, the other most idealized relationship that I can think of is the relationship that people have with their church. Uh, people think that a- attending a church and ultimately becoming part of a faith family, uh, they think that it's going to be continuously one nurturing relationship uh, with all these people who love Jesus. And, and uh, they think it's just going to always be wonderful because how could anyone who loves Jesus ever disappoint you? How could anyone who loves Jesus ever bug you or get on your nerves or even worse, sin against you? And we forget that the same people who make up marriages 
make up churches too. And that uh, being part of any family, whether it's your biological family or your faith family, being part of any family, uh, it takes work, it takes effort, it's not always easy, and there are things to work through. And it can actually be challenging work to to uh, uh, maintain health in a, in a family relationship. And so we've been talking a little bit about the fact that we are placed into a family. And the last, last Sunday and today and next week, we're going to talk about some of the work that's involved, what, that, what, loving, what a loving family actually looks like. Because we're reminded by John in 1 John, we're reminded of what he says. He says that oh, we're not a, dear children, family language, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with deeds, uh, with actions and in truth. It's not enough to talk about love and idealize it. What we have to do is actually do the hard work of loving each other. And we've been talking last Sunday, today, and next week about three things that we do to to uh, love each other. And last week we talked about how love is serving one another, that, that we go low. We go low to serve one another. This morning we're not going to talk about serving, we're going to be talking about preserving, preserving unity in our family. And we're going to talk about the most important thing that you and I can do to preserve unity in the family in which God has placed us. Because when you turn to Jesus... You not only were forgiven of your sins, your relationship with God repaired, you were not only justified in all these theological terms, one of the things that happened is you were familified. You were put into a family of Jesus' followers. You were brought into God's family and then into a local expression of that family, the local church. And uh, one of Jesus' prayers for this extension, this, this local expression of God's family, is that it would be unified. We looked uh, during this study at the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night Jesus washed his disciples' feet. That same night, Jesus prayed a prayer. And what he prayed in John 17 is that his followers would preserve unity. He prayed and explicitly said, I'm not just praying for the 11 guys who were left, that they would be unified, but I am praying for everyone who comes after me, that all my followers would be one. He prays, for the unity of the faith family. And our unity, Jesus says, just like our love, our unity is one of the ways the world will know that he is alive and well and that we are his true followers by the unity that exists between the brothers and sisters who are part of the family that he has established. Except so many times what Jesus prayed for doesn't actually come to fruition. So many times, local churches, these local expressions of, these local collections of Jesus followers are, are divided and splintered, and they have this chronic low-grade fever that keeps them from ever being very healthy. And in, in, uh, instead of being marked by love, they're marked by division and grumbling and immaturity and pettiness. And what that means is they never get around to the business of making disciples, And not only that, even if they did get around to the business of making disciples, they don't display the family trait that identifies them as Jesus' followers, and that is love for each other. A few years ago at uh, Trinity's men's retreat, which, by the way, we're on for a men's retreat this year, the very last weekend in April. 
We're going to have a great time. So put that on your calendar, guys. Last weekend in April. A couple years ago, we were at the men's retreat. It's up in the Blue Mountains. It's where our middle schoolers are this weekend. And uh, we were outside the lodge and just kind of talking. And I saw, I saw something that says everything we're talking about this morning only in one picture. Uh, I looked up and, at this camp that we were at, and I saw a light fixture on the building, on the main lodge. And up there, you see that light fixture way up there. And uh, it just looks like a light fixture until you look closely and you realize there's not a light bulb in that fixture. There is something in that fixture, but it is not a light bulb. Do you know what it is? It's a hornet's nest. I looked at that and I thought, now that is a metaphor. That's a metaphor because that's a lot of churches. They're supposed to be places of light, but what they really are is a hornet's nest. If you're smiling, you know what I'm talking about. And if you're not smiling, you might also know what I'm talking about. And there's something that you can do in your church to make sure that it's a place of light and not a hornet's nest. Because there's one thing more than anything else that you and I can do to preserve unity in our church, in our faith family, and keep the hornets from building a nest And if churches around the world would just practice this one healthy behavior, it would transform churches, it would display unity and love to the world, our primary family trait, and it would transform the health of the church and advance the gospel faster than ever. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning. That one thing that we can do. So open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to go to this passage in, right in the middle of Ephesians, and it's a passage where Paul is, it's really a whole chapter, pretty much devoted to this idea of being unified. The whole chapter is kind of a classic passage on the healthy functioning of the church and how the healthy functioning of the church is tied to unity and tied to this important practice that we're going to talk about this morning. And Paul begins this passage in chapter 4, verse 2, by, uh, by reminding us how important it is that we pursue unity. Chapter 4, verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's the main challenge. And he goes on to say there's one body and one spirit. He's talking about why it makes sense to preserve unity because there's one body. There's one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope, uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul says we have one God. We have one faith. There's one spirit. We are one body. Because all this is one, we should strive, verse 2. We should, uh, uh, verse 3, make every effort to preserve this oneness, this important quality that, that, uh, makes, that, that marks who God is and who we ought to be. And so we ought to make every effort. And verse 2 says we ought to be completely humble and gentle and patient with each other in order to do this. And the, and the big idea is that we are supposed to go out of our way 
to preserve unity. Unity is something that's so important that we ought to fight for it. You have to fight for unity. The reason is, the rest of the chapter goes on in these next several verses, goes on to talk about the mission of the church and how the church is a body and the body has all these different parts which can, you know, many parts, many different parts can mean disunity, but they're all many different parts of one body. So we all have different gifts and different personalities. That's what the rest of the chapter goes on to explain. We have different gifts, different personalities, but we're to function together as one body. So if we're really to edify one another and build each other up in the faith as Jesus' followers, we have to be a place where we can have many personalities, many different functions, but unity as a whole. And the reason it's so vital is because if we're going to function as a body with all these parts, if we're going to carry out our mission of making disciples... Our unity depends on it. So the, the, really the hope of the, the, the health of the church is the hope of the world. If the church is broken and dysfunctional and disunified, then the whole world is in danger. Because the message that's a church, that the church brings to the world is the hope of the world. And so we've got to figure out ways to fight for unity in our local faith family. And if you f- want to fight for unity, there's one thing that you have to guard above everything else. One thing, well, there's one unity destroyer that can wreck relationships, that can divide believers, that can cripple the mission, and it's the number one threat to unity in a faith family. Paul seems to have it on his mind in this chapter because at four different times he brings this subject up in this one chapter. Four different times. I'm going to read several different verses, and I want to see if you can see the common thread. We'll just look at them up here. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will, all, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ, verse 15. Verse 25, each of you must put off, put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And then verse 31, get, all, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander. I don't know if you can see what the common thread is. Four different times, spaced throughout the chapter, Paul talks about this one thing that is so important in preserving unity in the faith family. And maybe you can see what it is now. It's how we talk. It's our communication. It's it's how we talk to each other and how we talk about each other. And it comes up four different times in this chapter on unity and the healthy functioning of the body. If you want unity and healthy functioning of the body, we have to be careful about how we talk to each other and how we talk about each other because how we talk to each other and about each other can either build the body up or tear the body down. If you've spent much time in a church, you know this is true. How we listen how we talk to each other and about each other. 
has a direct impact on the quality of our relationships. It has a direct impact on the level of unity that we're able to experience as a faith family. It has a direct impact on the health of our mission and has a direct impact on the reputation of Jesus. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk about uh, this idea with, with the big idea being this. If we want to preserve unity in our faith family, then we have to practice loving speech. Probably the first time I spoke about this idea, even from this passage, was 24 years ago, this spring. In my very first year at Trinity, one of the very first things we talked about was unity and how dependent unity is on how we talk to each other and about each other. And we continue to revisit this periodically because every healthy church has to have a healthy culture of loving communication. And we need to be reminded on a regular basis of what loving communication looks like. And that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to talk about five different qualities uh, for loving speech. Five marks of unity-preserving communication. And really, uh, we'll start with a couple that are kind of overarching, and we'll get down to some specifics. But the first two actually come from out of this passage, and they're just so important that I'm going outside of our Ephesians 4 passage to talk about these, because they're good, just overarching principles. They come from Jesus's brother James, who, who became a Jesus follower after Jesus' death and resurrection. And uh, James writes a very practical book. His book is very practical. It's kind of this love in action, faith in action uh, letter. And he gives a great summary for love and communication. And this, the things we're going to talk about this morning, they will serve you well in your family. They will serve you well in your job. They will serve you well in any context. And especially what James says, because he says... In chapter 1, verse 19, he gives us a couple important principles for any kind of communication. He says, listen, my dear brothers, family card, right? My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to speak, uh, quick to listen. Sorry. (laughs) Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So our first two principles really come from this teaching from James, that if we want to preserve unity in our faith family, first of all, we have to be quick to listen, quick to listen. And most of the time, uh, when we think about healthy communication, we think about our words, but healthy communication begins with how we listen to each other. James says the first thing you need to know about healthy communication is it starts with listening. It doesn't start with talking. And I don't want to, I'm not going to give a sermon this morning on how to listen, but I will say this. One of the quickest ways to take the oxygen out of any disagreement, one of the quickest ways to take the oxygen out of any kind of political, marital, relational disagreement is just to listen to what someone is saying. Really listen. And not think of what you're going to say next, but just be an absorber and use listening as a way to truly understand someone. And listening forces us to empathize 
with each other. And it's one of the qualities that's missing in the cultural discourse that we have going on right now in, in the United States is empathy. No one wants to understand where the other person is coming from. No one is willing to listen to try to understand what common ground might be shared, what common values we might, we might have. Instead, everyone is just talking, and there's no listening. And James says, listen, if you really want to, if, if you really want to have effective communication, especially when it comes to uh, preserving unity, you have to be quick to listen. It's, it's kind of funny because listening seems so passive. You have to be quick to do something passive, but actually listening is a very active enterprise if you're really trying to understand someone. And here's the truth, everybody needs to be understood. When you're having a conflict in your marriage and things are going like this, what you really want, if, if couples, if we could just slow down and say, let me understand where you're coming from here and what you have at stake and why you feel so strongly about this, that just changes the whole conversation quick to listen. And we all want to be understood. We need to value one another and show love for one another by really listening. So what if one of the marks of our faith family, what if one of the ways that we demonstrated love for each other was by really listening to each other and trying to empathize and understand? Even when we're working out a disagreement, That would be a a huge deposit towards preserving unity. So we're quick to listen. And the second thing James says is be slow to speak. Quick to listen, slow to speak. What if we slowed down our speech and increased the lag time between brain and mouth? What do you think might happen if we were able to do that? Slow to speak. Let me show you an example of what this looks like. It's from the movie Zootopia, and you, maybe you've seen it. You don't need a whole lot of setup for a Zootopia movie clip, you know. But it's about a rabbit named Judy who's become a police person, police mammal, you know. Uh, and uh, she's trying to solve a case, and she's in a hurry. And so she goes to the Department of Motor Vehicles to solve a case in a hurry, and this is what she encounters.
Okay. Um, I don't know if we have to talk that slow. But what if there was a lot of time between thinking about saying something and saying something? Or just going straight from, maybe not even thinking about saying something, just going straight to the mouth. You know, what if instead we talked slow and we thought about what we were going to say and we thought about whether it was appropriate and we only spoke if we had something appropriate to say. And that means sometimes we don't even say anything. What if that was one of our distinguishing features as a church, that we all talked slow? And uh, what if we applied this same principle to every form of communication, not just how we speak from our mouth, but what if we texted slow? And what if we Facebooked slow? And what if we, we were slow in every, what if we were slow to reply by email, you know, and, and we think about things, instead of just shooting things off, and we were slow. That's what James is talking about. He's talking about being quick to listen, but slow to speak. So those are the first two principles that will preserve unity in how we speak to each other and about each other, that we are quick to listen and we're slow to speak. A third principle, back in Ephesians now, constructive communication is also truthful. You see that in verses 15 and 25, where Paul says, instead, speaking the truth in love, the truth in love, we will grow up into all, into, into him, uh, in all things, grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. And then he says later on, verse 25, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. You see this emphasis on the healthy functioning of the body, Ephesians chapter 4, truthful speech. If we want to preserve unity in the faith family, we have to be truthful with each other. We have to be brave enough and loving enough to tell the truth. We can balance truth and love. And, uh, and you can tell the truth and, and still love someone. And as a matter of fact, you do love someone by telling the truth. And Paul talks about that. He says here, you know, uh, we're members of one body. <laughs> you know, when you're members of one body and we're all different body parts, the body parts have to speak truthfully to each other. Because not speaking truthfully is not the loving thing to do. Not speaking truthfully as, as a body to the other body parts is actually an unloving thing to do. If you're walking through your living room in the middle of the night and your eyes... Tell your feet, hey, don't worry, I can see fine in here. It's not a problem. Just go. And your feet go and you step on a Lego, right? Or you ram your foot into a table leg. Your toes are like eyes. You told me that this was going to be okay. And the eyes are like, I just didn't want to say anything. You know, I'm, I thought it would probably, I just didn't want to hurt feelings. And so I didn't think we'd have this problem. And your toes aren't happy when your eyes don't, tell you the truth. Your body parts speak truth to each other. Truthful. So, speech in the faith family is truthful. It's slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to speak, truthful, and then another big idea in this passage, it's useful. I want you to see verse 29. Verse 29 says this. It says, Do not let any unwholesome talk 
come out of your mouths. Stop there. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. But only what is helpful, not unwholesome, but helpful. What kind? What does he mean by helpful? For building others up according to their needs, so that it may benefit those who listen. You see all these different ways of saying that our speech ought to be useful. It's not just truthful, but useful. Our words are to serve a constructive, positive purpose. They're to edify. They're to meet a need. They're to build someone up. They're to strengthen uh, people. They're They're to benefit those who listen. And that should be the ultimate purpose of all of our speech, is speech that benefits everyone who hears it. That's a pretty high standard for how we speak. It's a pretty high standard for how we do social media. Only what is useful, that builds people up, that meets a need. And it rules out a lot of what comes from our mouths. This principle of loving communication rules out negative speech. It rules out snide comments. It rules out complaining and unconstructive grumbling, you know. And one especially destructive form of speech that Paul singles out in verse 31 is something that he calls slander. Verse 31 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Slander is one of the most speech-based things in that list on verse, in verse 31. And slander is some, it's, a, it's a definition worth understanding. Slander is this. Slander is any negative speech about another person. Whether it's true or not. You say like, well, hey, it's true. Well, no, no. Slander is any negative speech about another person. Whether it's true or not. Unless your responsibility as a believer requires it. Sometimes it may. Any negative speech about another person, whether true or not, unless your responsibility as a believer requires it. And that's a high standard. And the degree to which people in a faith family will practice and tolerate slander is a good indicator of the level of functionality or dysfunctionality that's present in that faith family. And then finally, so we have uh, quick to listen, slow to speak, truthful, useful, and then finally, loving. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love. So that all of our speech reflects the value and the commitment that we have towards each other. The high value that we put on our relationships, the persevering commitment that we share with each other, and these five qualities mark our speech. Quick to hear, slow to speak, truthful, useful, loving. It's kind of a long list, and I don't know how to make it portable for you, you know, but I think we know loving speech when we are practicing it, and we know what isn't loving speech. Kind of, you know it when you see it. And if there was one good way just to remember all of these, if we just remember that as a church we talk slow, meaning we're very intentional about how we communicate with each other, that would go a long way towards making sure that that our faith family is unified as, as it ought to be, and that we're demonstrating the kind of love that Jesus calls us to. If we'll practice these principles, 
It will preserve unity in our family. And that means there isn't anything we can't talk about. There isn't anything we can't work through if we follow these principles. And let me give you two quick comments. One, these comments kind of apply to everything we've talked about. One is that these comments apply to all forms of communication. When when, uh, Paul and James wrote these words in the first century, pretty much the only way that people communicated each other you know, regular folk like you and me was just by speech. But today, there are so many other ways to communicate with each other. It's not just speech. Actually, a significant portion of our communication with people is not through our mouths, but it's through our fingers or our thumbs. And this, these same principles apply to that kind of speech. It applies to social media, applies to how we text each other and how we email each other, that we're quick to listen Slow to speak, truthful, useful, loving on Facebook, on Twitter, on on all forms of social media. That's the first thing I want to say is that these principles apply to all communication. And secondly, that uh, we preserve unity when we talk to each other and about each other according to these principles, but we also preserve unity when we guard ourselves from other people who don't follow these principles. So you also guard unity when someone comes to you and starts to say something uh, about someone that their responsibility as a Christian doesn't require it, and your responsibility as a Christian doesn't require listening to it, and you say, you know what, why are you sharing this with me? I don't think I'm the person that you ought to be sharing this with. If you just had one simple sentence in your toolbox that was like, you could remember and pull out when you need to, why are you sharing this with me? I think you should probably find a more appropriate person to talk to about that. We not only protect unity by how we speak, but also by the kinds of things that we listen to. So, what's the vision here? The vision is that Trinity would be a faith family marked by our family unity, and that one of the ways we serve each other is not just by going low, but one of the ways that we serve each other is by preserving unity and talking slow in the faith family. And that as we do that, we demonstrate to the people around us that that we have brothers and sisters, and that we love these brothers and sisters in Christ, and as we do that, we demonstrate this primary trait that identifies us as Jesus' followers, and that's our love for each other. So that when someone walks into this church, that, that it makes the difference between walking into a place of light or walking into a hornet's nest. And we know what we want people to encounter when they encounter this faith family. We want to be light to this valley. We want to be a place of hope. And that means we have to guard family unity. So when people say to you, why do the people of your church talk like this? You say, because we really love each other, and we want to keep it that way. Right? Let's pray.
Father, we are so thankful to you that you are our Father, that you've adopted us into your family, and that you've put us in a concrete expression of that family, the local church, this local church, Trinity. And we're thankful. We're thankful for what you're doing here and what you have done and what you will do. And we know how important it is that we guard what you have already provided, and that is unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. You've provided that, and it's our job to maintain that, to guard it. We want to make every effort to do that. We especially want to do that in a, in a day and age when uh, the right kind of communication is not common. It's not, a, it's not a social norm anymore. And we want it to be a, a norm here. That we speak to each other in ways that are truthful and useful and loving. This is an always, uh, a never-ending challenge. And my prayer is that you would continue to help us to speak to one another in ways that build up, to be mindful of how powerful our words are and how, how much we can accomplish for good with them, and that we would be people who, whose speech is beautiful and constructive and helpful, and that we would practice these principles in our marriages in our families, on the job, with our neighbors, and especially in this faith family. And we ask this all through Jesus. Amen.